0: Hello and welcome to episode two of the Painting Podcast. Just my stream of consciousness about certain art topics, painting related, for 25 minutes. And today I'm painting some clouds. So I started thinking about cloud paintings and Cloudscapes and these sort of things. And that kind of led me down the hole of thinking about one of my favorite painters, which is Kaspar David Friedrich. And uh, he was a German romantic landscape painter at the turn of the 19th century. He's, um, you know, now he's really highly regarded. However, he has a pretty interesting life story. And uh, he's primarily known for some really cold winter paintings. Um, His relationship with the landscape is one which kind of oscillated throughout the years. Um, but mainly he was, uh, he was the guy that, if we had to think of what did Kaspar David Friedrich do that changed painting and the way we see painting today, and why is he important, the big thing he did was he started putting crosses into, um, the landscape and a lot of this was because he met a, uh, a theologian who ba- you know, basically told him that nature is God and for that reason you'll often see the people in his paintings they're characterized as being very small Like, often the people in his paintings are very small. And the landscape is overflowing the space. So, there's a metaphysical aspect to all these paintings. And he had his own battles going on in his head as well. concerning, you know, bouts with pretty serious depression. Um, Other people painting around the same time of him would be Turner and Constable. John Constable, if you want to make cloud paintings, just look at Constable. Um, He's kind of the pioneer of the cloud paintings. But a lot of this had to do with this romantic shift, which was happening at the time, and this kind of disillusionment with materialism, as well as kind of a spiritual renewal. So you could imagine today that if somebody was basically saying that consumerism is not helping mankind at all, And it's taking us away from our connection to God. It it could be kind of a a hippie stance, I suppose, in some regards. But in uh, those days, it was all tied up with the church. And so, the real battle would be for trying to get... The idea of the landscape into the church, the landscape being God's creation, kind of differentiating between what man makes, stuff, cool fashion accessories, these sort of things, and what God makes, trees, dirt, streams, all this sort of stuff. That's, that's where we're at with German Romanticism and landscape painting. And that's where we find ourselves with Kaspar. So, Kaspar David Friedrich had a pretty tumultuous early life. And a lot of his um, family members around him died, and there's a lot of, you know, conflicting information about whether or not his family was actually rich or actually poor, nobody seems to really know, Um, but his dad was like a candle wax maker, so you can imagine they weren't exactly um, the top of society back then he had ten brothers and sisters and two of his sisters uh... died by the time he was seven and his mother sophie uh, she also died when he was seven and then uh, his brother who was thirteen um It's posited that Kaspar fell through the ice and his brother ran out to save him, successfully pulling him out of the lake. And in doing so, his brother fell into the lake and died. And uh, you know, he would have been probably 10 or 11 when this happened. So you can imagine what kind of an impact that would have on his worldview. growing up. But later on he got into uh, an art department. And um, there was a lot of stuff going on in Germany at this time too. Relating, I don't, I'm not an expert on all this. I probably should be um, better versed on it. But there was a lot of French influence happening in Germany. I don't even think this was Germany at the time. It was, like, controlled by Sweden. So, I don't know what the hell was going on back then. (laughs) But basically, there was a lot of French influence. And I know that uh, Kaspar is seen as espousing, like, a very German identity, which, of course, would cause him problems later on, um, when his work would resurface in in the nineteen thirties and nineteen forties and become synonymous with nazism which is a pretty uh... damaging thing for your paintings to be labeled as pretty overwhelming especially when it happens a hundred years later <laughs> you know you make a painting all of a sudden a hundred years later somebody says it means something else just goes to show a uh, what you know what paintings are what what paintings mean to a culture that other groups would have to try and completely rewrite the meaning of a work to fit their own needs but anyway Caspar got into a into an atelier back then you know all these ateliers would would give you a pretty standard form of training and that would begin with uh drawing from plaster casts and then uh, probably starting with charcoal and then graduating onwards to ink and brush and then going towards you know watercolors and ultimately oil painting being at the top top of the ladder And so, uh, yeah, Casper got into this this drawing school, this painting school. And uh, he attended that and did all the, you know, normal academic stuff, sat and drew plaster casts for a year. We often forget about that in our training as artists now, of course, where a lot of what we do is supposed to be based on, you know, us coming up with all these techniques you know there's not exactly a set unless you're going to an atelier Um, most schools don't have some sort of set standard way of teaching even foundations in in this type of academic matter a lot of schools don't even teach observational drawing anymore this is due to a lot of you know what happened in the nineteen seventies with the rise of conceptual art so we have to acknowledge where we're at and oftentimes we're at a place where uh, these types of basic rules are no longer regarded as something um, which is needed in order for a painting to be viewed as good. Right? So people teach themselves stuff all the time, and they make great work. So it's just a different way of thinking. But back then he went in, and he would have been trained, you know, like a concept artist almost... In these types of techniques, this is how you know value works and shading, and this is how you make a sketch of a place. He always sketch um, the places that he went to. He had one class with a teacher, and their class was to go out and draw from nature. Pretty standard exercise, I can imagine maybe students today would just be annoyed (laughs) you're like okay today you just have to go and draw nature, maybe not I bet half the class would be into it but uh... yeah his teacher took him out and they went drawing together and uh... this is at the same time he's talking to that theologian I can't remember his name but he was talking to that theologian who um, was telling him, you know, nature is God, basically. You know, nature and the beauty of nature is like a revelation from Christ. So, there was that happening in his mind at the same time, and certainly consuming a lot of his ideas. So, I'm sure he was thinking about that as he drew and as he painted. And, uh... So he, you know, he he did a bunch of these drawings. He, he worked primarily in, um, watercolor and, uh, ink. And so he would just do these pretty simple watercolor drawings and um, small paintings with watercolor and ink. And Goethe uh, the famous philosopher, uh, he actually was running, like, a really cheesy art competition. And, uh, he even, like, he was kind of upset with the state of affairs. It's kind of funny to think about. But, like, Goethe had this exhibition every single year. And, uh, it tended to bring in a lot of these really banal painters. So, Goethe's reputation was actually being hurt by running such a a cheesy show. People were thinking, like, who is this guy? This guy's supposed to be smart. He's got, you know, a show full of, like, terribly painted flowers. But then uh, Kaspar came along and gave him uh, a couple drawings for this, for this show that Goethe had. And uh, he won the show. And uh, this was, a, you know, a great success for him. This kind of put him in the realm of real artist immediately. He won this big exhibition and all of a sudden Goethe knows who he is and Goethe's saying good stuff about him too. I don't know the exact quote, but he's saying, you know, this guy's great. So that kind of explodes his career at a very young age. And uh he can basically at this point, you know, he's airborne. He's in control of his career now, so what's he going to do? He's going to start making oil paintings, and uh, he's in his early 30s at this point, and uh, he makes this painting of a mountain, a mountaintop with uh, some trees, beautiful sky, sky is taking up almost all of the composition, at least 75% of it, and at the top of this mountain, in this like beaming, sunny, you know, sunset sort of situation, at the top of the mountain is a crucifix with Jesus crucified. And, um, you know, this is taking Jesus out of, you know, the, the environment we, we traditionally see him crucified in. You know, throughout all these years, there's a lot of crucifixion paintings. Everyone's got to do a crucifixion painting. Uh, but this is one of the first times we really see a crucifixion outside of this environment you know with the the guy poking poking Jesus who's on the cross and Mary crying or weeping and the soldiers and the sign above his head so he's taken him out of that context and put him somewhere completely different into the mountains And these are, you know, this is a very certain location as well. These are the mountains of um, eastern Germany, northeastern Germany, and Bohemia, which is now Czech Republic. It's actually, he would end up, um, his last days in Teplitz, which is a Czech town, actually. So, um, this you know putting a crucifixion into landscape now we don't we can't imagine many Christian people getting upset by that sort of image. I actually remember I was driving through Wyoming just a few months ago and stayed in this little town there um Sundance, yeah. Sundance, Wyoming, it's near the uh, the Devil's Tower, which is kind of a cool tower coming up out of the earth, speaking of, you know, Caspar David Friedrich imagery, but anyway, I was there, and at the top of, I went to go buy some wine at around, it wasn't that late, but the sun sets early, you know, it's probably 5.30 or 6 o'clock. And you can buy wine from this little bar there. You have to go into the bar and then ask the bartender to buy a bottle of wine. And she'll take you behind the bar into this little room that's like a storage room, essentially. And you can buy wine there. Anyway, so I bought the wine. I'm walking out. And at the top of one of the mountains, you know, you're nestled right into the the Rocky Mountains here. And at the top of one of the mountains was an illuminated cross. And I I remember seeing that, thinking about, like, Caspar David Friedrich. Um, Now we see that as an image of faith, and people wouldn't necessarily, Christians, I can't imagine, would be um, upset with this. But when Caspar was painting there were religious critics within the church that really were upset with this, you know, this idea that the landscape and the earth are truly, you know, God's creation and that there's perfection in in all of nature. But nonetheless, uh, Friedrichs ends up doing Uh, an altarpiece. He gets a commission. And he ends up doing this altarpiece painting. And through that, um, he has successfully brought the landscape into the church. So this really is a big jumping-off point for landscape painting the point where the landscape itself is what is revered and Caspar was, you know he, this is the beginning of 1810 or so um, and so the the landscape is now something that's revered and now it's something that is within the church he'd continue um, make these paintings throughout the years, and they're beautiful, you know, uh, renditions of the world. He ends up getting married around 1820 or so, and during this time, you know, you can see a a palette change that occurs where he starts using a lot lighter colors. We think maybe stuff is okay. but for Kaspar, stuff, stuff was not okay. Definitely not. Um, he, he ends up painting, um, he starts painting a lot of cemeteries, a lot of decrepit ruins. Um, it's posited that he was suffering from se- severe depressions, which would last for years. So he's, you know, painting vultures and owls. And so his own relationship with the landscape is kind of a manifestation of, you know, the inner world colliding with the outer world that was occurring with Caspar. And uh, he also, you know, this romantic idea, it's kind of like there's the Emma Goldman quote, which is, i'd rather have roses on my table than diamonds around my neck that was you know around a hundred years ago she said that but it's kind of a a romantic and outdated view now with where in a society where materialism and consumerism and showing off how much money you have is important Um, now that's kind of a seems like a romantic and outdated view And just as that seems outdated now, back then, during Kaspar's life, his work also became regarded as something that was outdated. These romantic ideas were from a bygone age. So he's making these unbelievably beautiful landscape paintings. You know, today they're regarded as some of the most important landscape paintings ever made. And while he's alive, he has this fall from the top of the mountain, and nobody's buying his work anymore. It's almost impossible to comprehend how paintings this good couldn't have any buyers. And so Caspar David Friedrich is... Wonder, literally, he's he's known for waking up before sunrise, so he wakes up at 4:30, and he's walking around cemeteries at night, and uh, going on these long con- contemplative contemplative walks and journeys that last hours and hours, and he's a complete recluse from society. So you can imagine how caught up in his own perception of the world he'd have to be in his existence, but yet taking the time to continue painting. And strangely, you know, he's, he's the proverbial starving artist, and the royal family of Russia thankfully bails him out. I don't know why. But they did, and they bought a bunch of his paintings. And that gave him enough money to live out his last few days in Czech Republic. Teplitz went to a spa to get better, but he didn't. Thanks for listening. I'll (laughs) do another one soon.